no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Mickey Show All right. Hello, everybody. You are, of course, watching one of our special interviews for the TNS Book Club. Uh, The TNS Book Club, of course, we have all different uh, levels for our book club. You can read one book with us a month, two books with us a month or four books with us a month, which has been I don't know how I'm doing it, to be honest. (laughs) Um, You know how I'm doing it? I'm not tweeting as often, which is very relevant to this conversation. I have noticed that my Twitter has gone down dramatically, partly because of exhaustion, but also because I need to have time to read my books and other books too. Uh, So you can be like like me and go old school. Of course, we have a partnership with Verso Books at TNS Book Club, and uh, we're excited. One of our our latest book club editions is, it's it's a book that came out a couple of years ago, but I think it's extremely relevant. Uh, It is titled The Twittering Machine. We have Richard Seymour here. Uh, Richard is the author of The Twittering Machine. He's also the founding editor of Salvage Magazine. And on top of all that, uh, he's, he's a socialist, uh, a broadcaster based in London, and he writes regularly for The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and Jacobin, among many other spots on the internet. But you can support his work at patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. We will put that in the info section on all of our different places. Richard, thanks for joining us. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I, before we came on, I was, I I told you that I just tweeted out something about, uh, you know, like one of these New Yorker, I don't know if you guys see them abroad or or if they're as popular abroad, but the New Yorker cartoons uh, that always hit you in that that special spot where you're like, oh, you're so right. It's like when Onion does something that's just so right, but deeply depressing. And uh, this, this is a cartoon that went out um, today uh, with a couple in bed basically saying that, you know, I don't like to tweet after 11 o'clock unless democracy is at, at risk or our, our fundamental rights are at risk. And of course, that's like every minute now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> every second, like I have like a bingo card. What's the latest, you know, part of the apocalypse that's going to pop up tomorrow. We've got floods in New York, tornado, uh, fire tornadoes. And of course, you know, this is just, just in the U S this is just the U S mm. <laughs> not to mention the rest of the world, uh, climate change and, and the rise of fascism. So when you wrote this book, um, this is in the middle of, of the Trump administration. This is post Brexit or at least the vote on Brexit, if I, or at least when it was published, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there's definitely a wave of, of fascistic tendencies that are, are, were, were growing globally and, of course, have been enhanced since then. And I think what was so interesting about this book is, is it's, this is so much part of the conversation now about how the internet has uh, been exploited by these these folks, whether it's the Steve Bannons of the world to facilitate these conversations. But let's just get to the root of this. You know, these are the, the 10, 15 years ago when a lot of these these platforms, specifically Twitter, um, launched. You know, we thought this was 
great for democracy and free speech. And how do you cure you know, problems with free speech? Just more free speech. But it doesn't seem to be working out that way. And what I really appreciate about your book is you get to the business model of it, which for some reason was missing from the conversation 15 years ago, or at least, you know, in a larger, larger way when we were having these, um, you know, these, these fantasies about a, a utopian world led by Twitter. So where do we go wrong what, back then? I think what happened was that this industry, which I would uh, call the social industry, you know, and as much as it's commodified our social life, you know, if you're conducting uh, most of your social life through screens, then that's not, um, you know, that's not fake. That's that's real life. That's your life. Um, so it's the social industry. And what happened is that it came along at just the point where a lot of other things were being taken away, a lot of other f- forms of uh, plenitude due to the credit crunch and the austerian aftermath. So essentially, you know, you've got libraries being closed down, but don't worry about it because you can download free books on the internet. You know, um, you've got uh, youth clubs being closed down, but you can spend all your time on Twitter. Um, uh, political parties. Nobody has any trust in political parties anymore. Um, we have a crisis in political organization. Uh, are young people going to join trade unions? Um, and so on and so on. Well, never mind. Don't worry about all that. You can organize on the internet. And there was even a sort of um, quasi theoretical backdrop to this, you know, the idea that um, it would be a kind of um, a Delusian kind of horizontalism, you know, um, uh, where there would be almost spontaneous forms of organization taking place that would root around the need for civic leadership, for political leadership, and therefore root around all the problems that come with that form of political organization. So you can understand why Occupy and, you know, various other tendencies uh, looked at this and thought that there was some hope here. You've also got to bear in mind that at the time, this industry was assiduously branding itself with democracy. Started when, um, during the Green Movement in Iran, uh, State Department was very close uh, with the Twitter uh, bosses at the time. Um, I should sort of give some context here. Twitter itself is modeled to to some extent, partly on a, a previous uh, app, which was essentially an app that was designed for activists in order that they could have a system of communication that would root around police control and uh, repression uh, during the 2004 protests against the Democratic and Republican National Conventions. Um, and to some extent, it was successful. That aside, however, of course, Twitter is not interested in promoting protest. It has a business model. But it had one back then, though. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt because this is. Me? I'm sorry to interrupt, but did, you know, at that time when they launched, um, the big, you know, there were a lot of conversations about well, how are they going to monetize? How are they going to monetize? And I remember these. I would go to these conferences, like the Personal Democracy Forum and other places, where they, especially during the Arab Spring, where it wasn't just Twitter, but there were a lot of different other tools out there at the time. They're called tools, not social platforms. At least the the other tools. Um, that were, you know, it was all about uh, democracy and 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 supporting democracy. But you know, you say that they they had a, it wasn't part of their business model. But did they have a business model back then? I mean, I just remember it was like Scrappy Jack Dorsey and 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 oh, like no, they, they, they did. Um, they were stumbling upon it because you have to remember at that point uh, these were latecomers in the platform game. 
there had been a series of others, but they, you know, had been weeded out in a sort of proto-evolutionary process and all their best gimmicks had been stolen by the more successful platforms. So, for example, the like button, I think if you look back on that, Facebook started with the like button around 2009. could be wrong about this, but I think that's roughly around the time that they started to use the like button. They took it from uh, several other platforms and it drove their business crazy. Um, they also at that point already had uh, close connections with um, various academic departments uh, so they could offer data for research. And of course, you know, I mean, Twitter was founded by a group of essentially venture capitalists. You know, that was where the money came from. Um, and they were experimenting with ways to make money from uh, sociability, from community um, so they definitely did have a business model. I mean, it maybe hadn't uh, clarified entirely at that point, but the basic idea uh, of uh, being an advertising platform, as Nick Cernicek calls it, um, had already been established by Google, by Facebook, by various others. So they're in touch with uh, the Cl uh, uh, Clinton State Department and the Obama White House, and you know uh, the, the the Democrats, uh, particularly the centrist Democrats, had been very strongly supportive of Silicon Valley, um, you know, back in the 1990s, and that was continuing under Obama. Um, and they said this was during the Green Movement in Iran. You need to keep this system up and running because they were planning on doing some engineering and so on. You need to keep the system up and running because there are kids in Iran who are using it to communicate what's going on in Iran. Uh, there is a Twitter revolution happening in Iran. And they that, that concept got out there into the world, presumably because Twitter promoted it. Um, subsequently, there were Facebook revolutions. You know, the Arab Spring was attributed not to the uh, assiduously built up networks around the labor movement, uh, the mills and so on in, in Egypt, um, but to the, um, uh, you know, the, the plucky young middle class um, pro-American activists who were, uh, you know, good at using Facebook and Twitter. Not to disparage that, there's an element of truth to that, but it's just not uh, anything like the whole truth. So I think that the illusion uh, was very tempting at that point. And at that point, the far right had not yet used uh, or learned how to use this new medium and to master its idioms. And the trolling subculture had not yet fused with um, sort of uh, far right communities. Um, so that um, the, the idea that the far right would be a dynamic internet force, uh, that it would have mastered the idiom of irony, that it would be producing uh, attractive uh, subcultures. I mean, I, I say that, you know, hesitantly, but this happens to be true. They, they are attractive to large numbers of people, attractive subcultures. Um, it would have been counter, counterintuitive back then. It wasn't until ISIS became the Islamic State became a major force on the internet using all of these techniques with their suave hipster sort of voice um, uh, wedded to a completely bananas uh, sort of apocalyptic jihadism uh, that you started to see how things could go the other way. Um, and then, of course, you had, as you, as you mentioned, uh, the Brexit vote 2016, Trump 2016. I think Modi um, had been elected in 2014, so he he was something of a canary in the coal mine, if you like. Um, and then, of course, you had Duterte uh, elected in 2016. A couple of years later, you've got uh, Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. And they're all using 
yeah, they're they're all using these same basic uh, online techniques, and they're all thriving in an idiom where supposedly they were going to be old hat. You know, Donald Trump uh, even then was over seventy years old, I think, and uh, you know uh, he, he was ranting about birth certificates. And I mean, how did it come to pass that this? Uh, spoke to so many millions of people. Obviously, you can't blame all of this on Twitter and Facebook and so on. But I do think it's it would be worth asking whether there is just something of a of an incipient fascist potential in these platforms. So I think a lot about these things because my business model is built off of the internet and, and, and as many others are, but we, I've noticed a difference, um, in platforms that I joined 15 years ago and started growing, um, my support on versus, uh, platforms that I joined a year and a half ago and seeing how the algorithms have shifted, um, or just respond differently to this pretty much the same content that I am putting out there. Um, and, and, and especially I was, I was a surrogate for, for Bernie Sanders in 2016. And I can tell you, uh, when we would post things in 2016, there was a response that was, I mean, there was no way we could have ever have anticipated. Now I'm not just talking about Bernie Sanders. I'm talking about surrogates, uh, posting commentary, the, the virality of our videos, the virality of our tweets, uh, Facebook, of course, even though their numbers were, were later, uh, you know, they admitted to be not be not being accurate. Um, the reach was, was, was far, far vaster. It was much, it was, it was, it was, it was incredible. Like there was no way of measuring it. A couple of years later, we, it was like someone had pressed pause and just said, good try. And, and I'm noticing it, you know, even personally, I'm noticing it now in the last, you know, since the pandemic started now, at the same time, the right wing has just grown like their audiences have grown out of control. People that I knew I've debated on TV for 15 years, 10 years, whatever. Um, and didn't get good ratings just to put this in perspective of like human, you know, viewership didn't necessarily get extraordinary ratings, which you have access to when they go on cable news. So it wasn't based on talent or debate or arguments the way it is on TV. There was something else going on. So Ben Shapiro is a perfect example. Ben Shapiro, uh, his he's always in the top 10 views, two or three of his channels on Facebook every single week, every single month. Yet doesn't really get the, I mean, he gets fine ratings on, on Fox News, but, you know, they didn't get him a contributorship uh, for a reason. So the rules are different. And I, I personally am just like, they must, something must be going on behind the scenes. And Obviously, the algorithm is a big part of this, but it seems like this algorithm, the actual design has shifted. And I don't yeah. know if it's just something I can't tell if it's just there are more people of that type on the Internet now than there were before. And so they're just they've moved the algorithm because there are more young white men who are upset at the world and, you know, the others. And that's been pushed out by Donald Trump. Is there more of that than there are Bernie Sanders socialists? But it doesn't seem to be. Uh, reflective of like actual society and, and that I think like the growth rates, I'm not talking about the actual numbers, but the growth rates. Does that make sense? It does. And I think there was a change in the algorithms. Uh, I, I'm not, um, privy to the uh, like details or anything, but I've read some things about this, which suggest that I think partly in the context of what was called the tech clash. So this was largely a, a sort of liberal phenomenon, 
especially after Trump won. Um, and basically the idea was uh, you platforms need to get yourselves under control because you're promoting extremism. Now, um, the uh, effect of this uh, has been to essentially uh, demote the kinds of content that certainly the left thrived with. Um, but the other side of this was that they started to promote video content because there was a lot more money in that. And video content, for some reason, seems to be something that the right does very well with. Um, so if you look at YouTube and Super Chat functions, they make a lot of money with this. Now, there's a lot of questions about why this might be the case. One possible answer is there's something about right-wing sociality uh, and sociability that, um, you know, making it, uh, organizing it around the uh, exchange of money or giving people the opportunity to donate money, uh, say, uh, you know, 1488, for example, which would be a, a sort of Nazi reference, uh, gives them a little hit. And, but also that's something to do with the way in which they organize their social life. Um, so that's one possible part of it. But I think more fundamentally, um, what we've got here is the logic of infotainment or disinfotainment, if you like. It's uh, the logic of extreme sports. So when they tell us, uh, as numerous uh, journalist articles, reports, and so on have shown, that these uh, algorithms uh, are promoting people towards more extreme content, so if you start off with, um, let's say, uh, Donald Trump video, you'll end up with Holocaust denial. That was that was what it was on YouTube. Um, interestingly, the logic on the left was that if you started off with Bernie Sanders, you would end up with uh, 9-11 truth, so, which is not – it's, it's interesting how this works because it, it's not that it takes you in a more extreme direction politically because it doesn't – that's not far to the left. It's, it's that it takes you in a more extreme direction in the sense of extreme sports. It's thrills and spills. It's like, oh, my God, did you know that jet fuel can't melt, melt steel beams? You know, um, and uh, they, this is, this is um, preying on something that already exists in people, uh, a susceptibility, a potentiality. And so if you've got people who would never in their lives look at a Holocaust denial video, and would never in their lives, uh, you know, uh, think hateful thoughts about Jewish people or whatever. But it's just put there in front of you. It's up next. It's what there is to watch. And maybe, you know, they're designed very well to, you know, they've got uh, the structure there. They're not trying to reach you at the level of reason. They're not trying to argue with you. I mean, that's fairly superficial. Um, they're trying to intrigue you, to excite you, to give you the uh, tantalizing possibility of uh, knowing the world in a way that other people don't. You know, the sheeple don't get it. You get it uh, because you're watching this content. And that's there's something very addictive about that. There's also, uh, Adorno pointed out that with uh, anti-Semitic paranoia, um, one of the things about this is that... Um, no matter how um, uh, you know catastrophic the worldview of the anti-Semite might be, uh, there's evidently something comforting about it because to them at least it makes sense. At least it allows them to cognitively map the world around them. Um, but the other side of that is that um, for some reason it has a propensity to escalate. 
Um, so that what starts off as, you know, I don't particularly like those people, they're grasping, you know, they're careerists, etc. you know, low level prejudice. Uh, for some reason, it stops delivering the same sort of satisfaction. As with the logic of pornography, you have to go more and more extreme to get your kicks. So that's part of the sort of uh, escalator logic. Yeah, like a drug or like any number of things that are addictive. Um, but so this is the the point about it. So there's something about, I would say, the way in which the social industry is organized as uh, by the economic logic of addiction, because they need you to keep on uh, generating data, by the logic of celebrification, because that has allowed a number of you know mini patriarchs of the far right to set themselves up as figureheads, you know, like um, uh, Steve Bannon, obviously one type, uh, but uh, there, uh, Alex Jones uh, is another. For some reason, interestingly, by the way, um, they all seem to have an interest in male supplements. Um, I think that would be worth looking into, you know, like get your vitamins from Steve Bannon, get your hormones from Alex Jones. Yeah, or Joe Rogan, yeah. Um, they're, or horse, they're, horse uh, medication from uh, uh, Jimmy Dore. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Um, yes, that's the new one. I don't know if that's crossed the pond yet, if you've heard this one. They're all I, taking I, horse medication, yeah. I have heard of horse medication. I didn't know that Jimmy Dore was promoting that. Uh, I've seen him go in some strange directions. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> um, but interestingly, the, there's the idea of masculinity needing a supplement. Okay, we can see where that is. That is you, know what, you know what they say. I just, as a, as a woman here, I need to make this very clear. If you need yeah. a supplement, what is that saying about you? If you need to attack female members of the squad or basically any female, and that takes up a good 10% of your show plus, what does that say about you? Oh, yeah. I think absolutely masculinity is in a crisis and has been for some time. And the, 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 obviously this, uh, the, this reactionary way of handling it is, um, ultimately, uh, you know, leading to, uh, catastrophes along the sort of um, Elliot Rogers or, you know, the, the sort of incel murderer lines. Um, however, um, so we've got, um, you've got the logic of addiction, you've got uh, celebrification. And then, of course, there's the whole question about news, what's happening to news, fake news. You know, it's, it's really interesting that um, that term only started to come into existence relatively recently with the internet, as though uh, the uh, newspapers and the broadcasters uh, were in the habit of telling us the complete and unalloyed truth, as though the news about Iraq had been uh, entirely free of propaganda, as though the responses to the credit crunch were not shot through with uh, pro-Wall Street propaganda and absolutely outright false information. Um, however, underlying that, there's the basic uh, sort of fact that what we call fake news seems to be a fusion of tendencies that were already at work. So the rise of celebrity news, the rise of uh, infotainment uh, is one part of this, the rise of various forms of military propaganda and government propaganda, celebrity PR, and so on. The rise of journalism, uh, a very important part of this. Essentially, the ever more sophisticated economizing of information um, so, you know, as a, as a writer, as a petty bourgeois scribe, I like, I like to believe that there's something basically uplifting and benevolent and replenishing about writing. But the reality is that in terms of the 
uh, industrial structure of writing, which is what we're talking about here, it's overwhelmingly geared toward the apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> there there are days where we sit down with our team and we say, okay, what direction do we want to take this show? We do we want to have one uh, segment of clickbait where we respond to one of these people and get into a fight, or you know, do we want to keep doing these long interviews? And you know, I would rather have like a really great quality audience that wants you know, the medicine and (laughs) it's not all medicine, but really thoughtful conversations, uh, then have one that is partly there for that. And maybe you can pull more in that way, but can also turn on you. And I've seen too many people who, who've lost, you know, upwards of 50,000 followers or or subscribers because, uh, some knee jerk reaction, something happens in the news and and they don't respond the right way. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, 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 it's dangerous, uh, for, for livelihood. It's dangerous for discourse. Um, but I, I'm really happy that you mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the days when then BuzzFeed just started and clickbait, you know, just began. And suddenly, uh, you know, people who are, who are interns in newsrooms were being asked to write articles like five, six, seven articles a day uh, about, you know, top 10 reasons why you need to X, Y, Z, you know, the, all, all the clickbait that, that started around that era. But, you know, I'm glad that you said this, this is related to business because this is, Post 2009, post, uh, at least in the U.S., and I know it it happened worldwide, but especially in the U.S., you had newsrooms shuttering, you know, left and right, statehouse newsrooms shuttering, um, investigative, like actual real investigative reporting trained um, investigative reporting was was down the tubes and. Uh, and then you saw these 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 media startups pop up and they were all going for investor money and. I want to go back to you on that. Like, what is the significance of whether it's news media, which plays into social media, um, and 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 these platforms? What is the significance of them being tethered to investors, um, especially early on? Like, how does I mean? You, so many of these news sites, by the way, are now completely they've merged with others, they've been bought out. They're you know within five years. Um, what is the significance of that? Um, well, it, ownership structure clearly matters. Um, I fear that what we're seeing there is just the early stages of um, a kind of uh, new model Rupert Murdoch. You know, essentially, uh, what we saw with uh, Murdoch was that um, he took over uh, an industry in which uh, the cost of production had grown very, very high. Um, and uh, he was able to um, reduce costs by busting the unions and by making the content uh, a lot more cheap and cheerful, a lot less demanding, uh, putting uh, you know, a pair of tits on page three, for example, a lot more sport, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and he did that before he sort of uh, leveraged it as ideological power, by the way. I think that's very important. So you start out by uh, giving the audience what uh, seems to be popular. Same thing with Fox. They didn't start out with the right-wing agenda. They started out with The Simpsons, you know. Um, So uh, that you reach people with what's popular and then you hit them with the ideology. Um, And I fear that we're going to end up in those sorts of places. Um, It's complicated, though, because uh, over the years, um, we've seen the growth of um, various sort of alt, 
uh, far right, uh, mostly far right kind of platforms. Um, and it would be impossible to explain QAnon or the anti-vax movement without the involvement of various far-right tech um, entrepreneurs um, and online activists uh, turned entrepreneurs um, trying to essentially economize um, the logic of online gaming, uh, which is what QAnon is. It's basically a kind of a participatory game. Um, and uh, But in the same move, uh, doing it on the basis of uh, you know, absolute commitment you know, um, ideological commitment. So um, that's one part of it. Um, and that's got absolutely nothing to do with news values, obviously, you know. So when you're talking, uh, we, we can talk about BuzzFeed and we can talk about, you know, the big, um, uh, the Daily Beast and all the rest of it. And some of these organizations, like Vice is another one, some of these have uh, d- d- devoted money generated through clickbait to actual really good journalism. I mean, they've done some of them have done better journalism than has recently appeared in the newspapers. However, they are in a market where they're in competition constantly for eyeball attention uh, and for click-throughs and watch time and, you know, essentially for a share of life. Um, They they are in attention, they're they're in competition with... uh, Basically, much more ruthless, cutthroat uh, artists of um, uh, manipulation and disinformation. And ultimately, you know, while the old news industry had some basic informing ideology of what, what were news values, you know, what constitutes a newspaper, what constitutes a news program, and they were basically... Uh, organized around Cold War ideological projects, you know, like big industrial giants that would stand firm on, you know, on behalf of the free world or might stand with the labor movement, as some of the press did in Europe. Um, but by and large, sort of cleaving to the right. Um, but that meant that they had some basic commitment to the values of news and to the values of objectivity so that even where you did have a Rupert Murdoch or an Axel Springer, you know, these big um, bosses, there was room for journalism. There was room for um, some commitment to objectivity, um, which is not the same thing as balance, by the way, Um, uh, something that uh, our broadcasters don't seem to realize. Um, But the, the situation now and increasingly is that it doesn't really matter whether you have um, a, a single owner or not, like a, a big boss owner. Um, what matters is that uh, is the kind of market that you're in and the way that it's, it, uh, it incentivizes um, an approach to facts that is completely instrumental. In other words, I don't just mean that you're indifferent to whether something is true or false, but information itself is a behavior-modifying mechanism you use it to guide people to do the things that you want them to do, to pay attention to this, to click through to that, to generate money for this client. Now, um, I just want to qualify what I just said there because this is very important. Uh, it does matter a little bit that uh, the press in the United States uh, tends to have um, sort of, if you like, broad class ownership. 
like the Washington Post is organ- owned by lots of different companies, or has been until Jeff Bezos uh, took over, I understand. But um, if you had a situation like you do in India, uh, for example, it would be much easier to co-op, co-opt uh, those newspapers for uh, a far-right agenda, which is what Modi has been able to do. So um, just to clarify that. But yeah, um, I think the the, the the structure of the market is uh, propelling us toward a situation uh, where it's increasingly difficult to actually do any journalism and where most of the work is actually what's called content generation. Um, and journalists are increasingly proletarianized, um, apart, that is, from a small layer um, of highly privileged, highly paid, celebrified, um, a guild, if you like, of, of people who are made into celebrities and, you know, given columns and all the rest of it, um, who don't themselves fundamentally have any commitment to objectivity anyway. Um Journalism is being squeezed out, and the only people who are going to be able to do it in the future, I figure, uh, are going to be those who are funded by philanthropic outfits. Um, and how sustainable is that? It's, it's, I mean, clearly, it's not very sustainable. But um, some of this is also, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to like figure out if what came first, the chicken or the egg, was it the in terms of social platforms and as well as the buzzfeeds of the world, um, the, the 24 second news cycle, the addiction to clicking, 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 and I guess they go hand in hand. Was that more of a human, um, an evolution of the algorithm based on human responsiveness and, or was it related to investors needing to have a return on investment, like immediately because of the way that our financial systems work in globally now, did you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. it used to be, you could publish one big investigative piece in a newspaper and have the basic news out and, and, you know, you'd have the comics and you'd have the style section and that would help people, you know, buy the papers every day, but it would pay for the bigger stuff. Mm. Uh, that it, it doesn't even, it seems like somewhere it's been lost in, in, in all this chaos because businesses need to make money. Yeah, I mean, but you ask a good question. Is it uh, is it something that humans are doing, or is it something that the devices are doing? And um, uh, how do we how do we understand the causality here? Or are the devices very- designed this way because the markets are demanding yeah. that they get the you know a return at a faster rate? You see, I think it's um, a combination of these things uh, because, on the one hand, of course. Um, this stuff wouldn't work if it wasn't acting on human capacities, right? So it's no good us talking, uh, scapegoating as, you know, there was a, a recent documentary, I think, called The Social Dilemma or something like that, which was basically the ideology of resistance moms and, you know, like um, the kind of people who don't want their kids uh, being taken in by pro-Trump propaganda, that kind of stuff. But it was it was uh, basically scapegoating the social industry um, as if it was responsible for everything. But the reality is that, um, you know, we have a society that is making people very lonely and very depressed. And you can see the statistics on this. It's, it's just very, very obvious. Um, and uh, it's uh, racking up forms of mental illness and people are becoming less sociable uh, and more frightened of social life, um, having less sex, um, having less romantic relationships. Um, this is not caused by the social industry. This is a problem that the social industry appears as a pseudo-solution to. In the same way, you know, the social industry didn't cause the 2009 uh, financial or 2008 financial crash, 
but uh, it um, represented a series of solutions for different kinds of people. Um, and um, I think that one of the things you can say about the incentives and the algorithms is that, first of all, the way in which they're structured, there was a, a study by Alice, uh, I think her name is Alice Marwick or Alice Warwick, um, who worked at Microsoft and uh, did her PhD research on uh, the uh, organization of the social industries platforms and, uh, you know, why they're organized in the way that they are and basically figured it out that this is the ideology of the kinds of people who design them. In other words, affluent white men who live in North California. And they have the ideology and the values of hierarchy, status competition, celebrity, uh, worship of wealth, and so on and so on. Um, and so they develop platforms where the basic idea of social life is exactly that. Constant competition for attention, constant competition over status. I mean, that's what Facebook actually was from the very beginning. Um, it's interesting that uh, I think it was initially... Um, uh, when they started designing it um, uh, for something more than a, uh, a a university platform, their model was a website called Hot or Not. Yep. I don't know if you remember this, I but do. Uh, right. So, um, so many shameful hours spent clicking through, right? Um, like or dislike, rate. Uh, you, you you had to rate. I people. was in college. <laughs> yeah. We just, just to put this in like we had our Ethernet plugged into our computer. Just to, for those of you who are younger, I remember I had to stretch my computer over to my dorm room bed and have a cord yeah. long enough. Oh yes. So you put your picture up and get a rating out of ten from various people, and that would be a, a sort of status competition. Um, and that worked very well um, in uh, campuses where obviously social life is so much of it is about competition in that way. Um, who's in and who's not. Um, and they basically designed uh, everything about it to mean that essentially, you know, if, if you sign up for an Instagram account, a Facebook account, or a Twitter account, there are a number of things you have to have. I mean, you don't absolutely have to, but you're encouraged to, let's put it like that. So obviously a name, uh, a photograph, a photograph of yourself, ideally, a description of who you are. Um, and then there's certain types of content that you can post. So you can see how this works out uh, on um, the different platforms in terms of what it encourages you to do. Um, Instagram is your, your, your best holidays, uh, your best life, your best self, your best meals, you know, everything just looking amazing. Like if you, if you happen to spend some time near a helicopter, take a picture of yourself so you look like you own it, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's, in other words, it's the, it's, it's the idea of an opulent lifestyle. Uh, Facebook is, has become a, much more about sharing, you know, like my kids are nicer than your kids kind of thing. And Twitter. <laughs> it's a hellscape. <laughs> it's for yeah. us. <laughs> Twitter is, um, my political ideology has killed fewer people than yours. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I mean, um, so I think, um, but, but the, the point is that um, uh, they're, they're all pushing you to create uh, an avatar of yourself, a personal icon, a celebrity icon. And if you look into the lives of celebrities and how they have experienced celebrity, 
it's striking that overwhelmingly they experience it as something that is belittling, as something that shrivels their lives, as something that traps them, because the icon is not them. And the more that they fall in love with this uh, glorious creature, you know, with uh, its very airbrushed image and, you know, airbrushed in every sense, um, the, the more they would feel that they were not worthy of it and they would feel desperate and trapped and then they would go on alcoholic benders or drug benders or they would self-destruct in other ways um, uh, in, 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 a, in a sort of act of auto-iconoclasm. Now, you can see that with people who, you know, go on Twitter or go on Facebook. Well, let's say they go on Instagram, take pictures of themselves, use the filters, they filter out the wrinkles, they filter out the, 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 the blemishes, whatever else. Um, they take it from up here, the, the picture from up here, so that they, they look nice and slim, all of that sort of stuff. For, for um, our audio listeners, he's, he's pointing his arm above his, way above his head. Yeah. Fun so trick. You know what I'm talking <laughs> I think the listeners know what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm just so anyway, the, 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 the point is you do this and you take an image of yourself and it looks good. Um, it looks better than you usually look probably because you're doing all the right techniques and, um, people like it. You get lots and lots of likes and that's your incentive. Just keep doing the same thing. It's the same shot over and over again, just slight variations and you get all the likes and you've seen, um, uh, you know, more and more data showing that, um, Instagram is particularly, uh, harmful for, um, young women and girls. Right. So it's not one of the most toxic platforms in terms of abuse, in terms of like interactions, but it is that sort of sense of being trapped in uh, an icon that really isn't anything to do with you. Um, and you're doing this just to propel an industry, you know, because they're making money out of selling your data. So um, it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, they could have designed it in any number of ways that would still have made money. but it just happens to have been historically the case that, uh, you know, these platforms were designed by the kinds of guys who live in Northern California uh, with its distinctive histories and who happen to be quite wealthy and who happen to be in those kinds of social networks where competition, hierarchy and status are key. And, and, and not only that, I mean, even even the games that we've all we've all seen the, the movies now and the shows over the last 20 years, the, 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 the developers will have these you know, benders. I mean, like I really say is they're, they're, they're competing with each other, uh, late into the night. It's very aggro. I mean, I, as a mm. woman, I've really never been in any environment with other women where we say, let's stay up all night. And who comes up with the best version of a short story? Go like that is the culture. Yeah. And I mean, whether we're aware of it or not, or conscious of it or not, I'm sure it's somehow that very, uh, you know, aggressive, who knows what they're on, what coffee, Red Bull, monster and other uh stimulants mm -hmm. they're on to 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 help them you know literally design our lives uh it's yeah. it's it's crazy they um, need male supplements they you know what they need they need to listen to more joe rogan oh my god he will help them through it he'll be their their he spiritual will. advisor <laughs> so wait just just before we wrap um <laughs> I, Give us some hope or is what's the few actually don't give us hope. We know that there's no hope. Come on. Let's we're of the generation now where we're like, and here we go. But what, um, where do we see this going? I mean, I, I, I only know people who are the, 
they've reached their limits and they're disconnecting. And I'm pretty close to that at this point. <laughs> I mean, where, where does the future lie? Okay. So, um, there's a number of things that could be said here. I'm not against, uh, trying to salvage some hope in this situation. So as long as hope doesn't be- become uh, blind optimism, uh, because that's not going to help anybody. Um, but I think one of the things we can say is that there have been other models. There have been other ways of doing things. And indeed, there still are. Um, there are groups of people out there running platforms uh, that are organized uh, on completely non-commercial, non-toxic, non-hierarchical bases and so on. Um, it's fair to say that um, it's difficult to come up with one of those that would be actually uh, commercially viable because it's not trying to get you addicted. Um, but there are models, you know, um, there would, for example, be a public sector model of platform organizing. Um, I looked into the history of Minitel uh, in France, which was the internet uh, avant la lettre. You know, it was uh, invented in the early 1980s. Uh, it was part of France's drive to modernize its economy. They, it was basically run by the public sector. Uh, you got your terminal for free from your local authority. And you would set up an account and pay based on how much you used it. And the thing about it was, was that it was kind of like the Agora that many people thought the internet would be. In other words, um, you know, it was a kind of, it it was, there was a market thing going on. You know, it wasn't like uh, some sort of lefty communal utopia. It was, uh, you know, there was a free market, but there was also uh, a lot of um, vibrant conversation, a lot of, and the left was able to use it uh, very efficiently. Um, so, if you look at uh, some of the uh, big strikes and social uh, movement campaigns from the late 1980s and the early 1990s, they were organized very strongly through Minitel. Um, not that that was a substitute for other organizing like trade unions and so on, but it was vital that they had those platforms. Um, made a big difference. So, um, it's worth saying that that history exists um, and that it, you know, I mean, it, it didn't happen to globalize for all sorts of reasons and the World Wide Web did. Um, but um, there, there, there are alternatives, there are different ways of doing things. But what I would say about the social industry um, and the question of whether we should log off and all the rest of it, um, I don't think, I mean, first of all, I'm a petty bourgeois scribe. I make money from writing. I need to reach audiences. These are platforms that, uh, you know, I'm not going to find a a better way of reaching them. Um, And if I'm not on there, then I'm, uh, you know, basically giving up opportunities that uh, very rich and powerful people would never give up. So uh, that's, you know, that's where I stand on this. But the question is, if you're going to use a media, um, if you're going to exploit the media, as it were, Think about how you would interact with uh, broadcast media or with the national newspapers. Say if you're running a left-wing project um, and you think, I, I really want to I w- I reach a big audience, so I'm going to talk to the, the right-wing press. I don't like it, but I'll talk to them and I'll try and use them to get as many people to hear what I'm saying as possible. Well, you approach it in a very professional way. You don't start blabbering about your personal life. You don't start uh, fights with people. You don't lose your temper like a a, a snap of your fingers. Um, You keep yourself under a certain degree of control. And um, you 
you know, you, you think very carefully about everything that you say. Now, the point about the industry is that it's designed to be volatile. It's designed to goad you. I see uh, every time I log on to one of these things, um, two or three items that drive me nuts that, uh, or that sort of are, are clearly enticing me. Like some, somebody said something stupid, so obviously stupid, uh, so easy to mock that I would be an idiot to pass up the opportunity to retweet, quote tweet and say, what an idiot you are. And that's a false satisfaction. Um, but then there's the other kinds, which are somebody saying something so outrageous uh, that I have to settle the score here and now. I have to prove them wrong. And again, this is displacement activity. It's not changing anything. It's not, Pick your battles, uh, that, old, that old line. Pick your battles. It's, 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 yeah, but we're not even, uh, it's not even a question of picking battles. I mean, uh, like, uh, I, the, the point is not to be so easily goaded. The point is to resist the emotional effects that this has on you because that's how it works. It operates. It uh, works below the belt of reason. Um, so as long as you can maintain a certain professional distancing towards it, um, and don't feel the urge um, to assume that you're among friends just because there's a spurious intimacy, um, then you'll probably manage it okay. Um, but there's also, I mean, like as somebody who's been addicted to many things, including the social industry, um, th- there's also a sense in which we need to train ourselves to uh, because you know there's there's good neuroscientific research onto the you know the, the brain science of addiction, um, and uh, one of the things we know about it is that uh, thanks to neuroplasticity, when you um, come off an addiction, your brain structure, your brain chemistry does fundamentally change. The the, the sort of previous behavioral funnels that were organizing a, a particular pattern of neurochemistry change. And uh, if you, for example, give up heroin, um, and uh, I discussed there, there's a, a brilliant um, writer who was, in fact, a heroin addict and then became a neuro, neuroscientist. Um, and, uh, you know, you take up, say, learning how to play the violin. Um, you will not have the same sort of impulses or incentives as you did before. So it's about training yourself one decision at a time. Um, And this is how addictions often work. They work behind your back through decisions that you don't even know you're making. So it's about bringing to consciousness as much as possible the reasons we're doing what we're doing so that we don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. And ultimately, you know, if, um, if the industry has got us writing more than ever before in human history, um, and uh, working for them, we might think, well, if you like writing, free it from the industry. Reclaim it as leisure time. Take your notebook down to the local park, uh, anything. Don't work for somebody else for free. It's your life, and they are taking it from you moment by moment every time you log on. Well said, and and just to add one little thing at the end of that, it. It also, when you get goaded into these, these, these addictions, these arguments, and you're not using this as a tool still, it's still a tool, no matter what, as you say, we should use the tool and use it in a very thoughtful way. But when we are, especially on the left, getting tied into these incredible arguments online and responding to everything, this energy that we could be putting into deeper writing, deeper work, more meaningful, long-term projects, 
Um, I mean, I know I've personally had to work on that addiction as, as I'm sure you have too, but it, it, even the, the decisions I've made to pull back have, have really shifted, you know, what the kind of work I'm producing. And I think for a time like this, as, as the, uh, the apocalypses were, were, were amidst it potentially, it is important to, to take a little bit of a break and, and distance and see what is worth, um, engaging in on these, these platforms. So I appreciate Appreciate your work. Appreciate this conversation. I think it couldn't come at a better time in this moment. Um, and, you know, please, please, uh, if you have any other research or observations, please keep us in the loop. All right. I will do. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you, Richard. And for everybody else, we have uh, the book on the way. You will be getting the book in the mail if you are a member of our book club. And if you're not, go check out our book club at uh, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. There's three different levels there. And of course, check out Richard's work. He's the author of The Twittering Machine and the founding editor of Salvage Magazine. Uh, his work is at patreon.com slash Richard Seymour. WTF. Yes, WTF. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. We are so excited to have our guest today. He is the author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. Very, very, very relevant right now. Uh, and also is a scholar of human ecology, the author of The Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World, and Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming. Uh, of course, our guest is Andreas Malm. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nome. It's a real pleasure being with you. So I'm um I'm in Greece and you may oh, have you heard <laughs> exactly you may have heard that there are over at this point I think 540 uh, wildfires that have spread across Greece um, of course the Pacific Northwest in in the United States where I'm from um, has also been on fire uh, and I feel like every day on our show we're just saying. Uh, you know, why isn't Washington reacting in a more effective way? Why isn't the EU? I mean, it, it, we have to do more to be able to respond because we're in the midst of climate change. And so your book to me um, was sort of this, this like, okay, why? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I mean, we've been, I mean, at least in the States, it's like the debate is still over whether or not climate change exists. It's like, your house is on fire. Man. Who cares who caused it? Fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, mean, I, I I totally share your feelings. And after after a summer like this, where it really feels like the planet has been on fire, or it's 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 been this season in global hell, that's precisely the feeling, the the immense frustration that I have, and I'm sure that many many people have, and indeed polls indicate that. Uh, the 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 vast majority of people around the world wants radical emissions cuts and uh, and a completely different kind of climate action than what we're seeing. But uh, yeah, clearly our rulers are not so far showing themselves capable of doing what's necessary. You know, what, what seems there's there's definitely some sort of overlap between um, a small group of people that voters, I should say, at least I'm going to speak on behalf of the United States, because obviously it's more complicated when you get into other countries. But um, in the U.S., there's a small group that are voting um, science deniers in some way or form, climate deniers, uh, vax deniers. There's an overlap when you look at the Zen diagram yeah. of, of who these folks are. But ultimately, 
it's capital who is facilitating these narratives and pushing these narratives out and allowing them conti- to continue. And I think what just doesn't make sense to me as, as somebody who covers this every day is capital is bound to be hurt by climate change and is, is hurting um, with the effects of climate change. Granted, not maybe their short-term uh, results, maybe there's disaster, all sorts of things that, that can be done. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a planet, <laughs> money's not going to go, it's, your, your fifth poem doesn't matter, sixth poem, whatever it is. So I, I, I guess what's mm. confusing is, is, I mean, yes, the tactics need to be raised because our rulers are so beholden to capital. Mm. Um, but why, why have other movements, I mean, you, you talk about this in your book, but other movements who've raised the stakes, who've really stepped up their game in terms of, of, of protest tactics. Hmm. Why is it that for the people who are fighting, those stakes rose versus right now where so many of us are dealing with climate change, in, it's in our faces and the tactics haven't risen uh, to that level yet. I mean, it seems like it's even, even worse than other situations. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's to me, it's a deepening mystery. It's it's deepening by the week, uh, almost. That's that's what it feels like to me, at least. Uh, I mean, if you consider Greece, there 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 are coal mines in Greece, there are uh, oil and gas pipelines in Greece, and Greece is on fire. So why there is why is there so little protest, uh, if any, <laughs> and so little collective action? And and Greece is a country that isn't foreign to militant protest. I mean, we've seen quite a bit of that in Greece over the past decade. Um, but you, I mean, you can ask the same question about virtually anywhere in the world where these disasters have happened just this summer with the floods in, in Germany, for instance. I mean, there, there is a little bit of climate activism going on in Germany, uh, perhaps more than in most places in the global north. But I mean, generally, there's there's no... Uh, collective action that corresponds to the scale of the problem and to the misery that people are experiencing right now. And that is hard to explain. Why aren't people out on the streets? Why are they not fighting when they know, or at least they should know, that it's their lives that are at stake? And also, I mean, it's not like this summer is what it's going to be like. Uh, There's this misconception that, uh aha, the summer of 2021, okay, this is global warming. No, I mean, global warming has no stable baseline, no average normal, no stagnant rule. It's a spiral that gets worse and worse and worse. The more CO2 that is put into the atmosphere, the worse it gets. And more CO2 is put into the atmosphere all the time. And fossil fuel companies are preparing to get more oil and gas and coal out of the ground to burn even more. And this is just uh, accelerating in a kind kind of compulsive automatic process that is presided over by our governments. And people should, uh, I mean, the feeling that I have after something like this is that wake up, folks. I mean, it's uh, this is nothing that we can adapt to because it's not going to be like this summer. It's going to be worse five years down the road or 15, uh, not to say 50 years down the road with continued business as usual this summer will appear in hindsight very benevolent benevolent compared to what's to come so people really should get get off their asses and and uh, the climate movement needs to get back in in action like it was a couple of years back before the pandemic broke out but then i also think that people need to escalate escalates the key word here i mean you'd think that we would have escalated that the climate movement would have escalated uh 
after Katrina, um, yeah. after, yeah. I mean, Hurricane Maria, yes, there was a lot of organizing in, in Puerto Rico. Um, but again, it's not enough. It's, it's, it's the same argument I make when I say, yes, it's so wonderful that progressives are getting elected to Congress, but it's not enough right now. We need it, 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 you know, a couple here and there, it really has to be militant. And, and so I guess you mentioned militancy and I feel like, is that the missing component? Are we, we're, have movements just become weakened over the, even though we've grown in sizes, it, it, it clearly there's an awakening that's happening, but the mm. militancy seems to be just missing from the equation at a time yes, when we but, need it. Yeah. 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 It, the, the strange thing is that it's missing from the climate movement, which is waging a very important struggle. It's, I mean, it's not missing in certain other movements, notably the BLM movement in the, in the, in the big uh, uprising in the wake of the murder of George Floyd had a militant component. It started with quite a lot of property destruction and the, the conquering and burning down of the police station in the third precinct in Minneapolis, which served as a kind of catalyst for the movement to leap to a nationwide mass scale that we hadn't seen before. And there was a radical flank in the BLM protests all through that wave last summer in the U.S., part of a movement that was the largest in American history. If you count by the number of people who participated in street rallies and, you know, something like 20 or 30 million people. And it's that it's, it's that mass groundswell of unrest that we need in the struggle against uh, the climate crisis and more particularly in the struggle against fossil capital that is you know, pouring fuel on the fire all the time as we speak. And uh, I don't I'm not arguing that everyone has to go out and smash things and destroy, I don't know, whatever, uh, machines, uh, infrastructure. But I do think that just as that uprising against uh, the systematic killing of African-Americans at the hands of police in the U.S. had that component of more confrontational struggle, so will the climate movement need to have such a component. And it, it strangely hasn't developed that component yet because we've been extremely gentle and timid and well-behaved in our pleas to politicians to please uh, do something about this. But I don't think, I mean, we need to be, frankly, quite outraged by now, given that things still go on, you know, and, and it happens everywhere. Mm -hmm. With the Biden administration now showering fossil fuel companies and licenses to, to, to drill and pump for, for oil and gas and yeah, the, the UK government is planning to open a new uh, massive oil field in, in the, outside the Shetland Islands. The, the Germans are continuing with their lignite mines. S the Swedish government with Social Democrats and Greens, and it just okay. uh, approved a massive new highway construction project in uh, Stockholm that will cause our emissions to balloon and so on and so forth. And I this should make people, I mean, when people see what, what this is bringing us now with only just a little more than one degree of global warming, people should be pissed off. Well, it, it's it's crazy to me because you mentioned BLM and, and the, yeah. the protests that happened um, in the wake of jo George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and yeah. last year. But uh, just like the Women's March, great. And then what happened? Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Um you know, so even with the the small militancy that was happening with those protests, and, and let's not forget there were many leaders who denounced that militancy because it was just a bad look for their movement. 
um, building, you know, uh, uh, building coalitions, which, you know, my perspective on this is the coalitions are really important to getting you to that point, but that you hit the point where you had the consensus now mm-hmm. is when you get militant because you have the leverage. And so mm-hmm. I think like in the, in the climate movement right now, it just, it just seems, um, there's like a Stockholm syndrome almost, yeah, the polls you mentioned, you said the polls, everybody understands for the most part, most mm-hmm. sane people who believe in science understand mm-hmm. that something needs to happen right away. Mm-hmm. And and I don't even know if if the politicians who believe that something needs to happen or or mm-hmm. believe in climate change or I don't even I don't even understand what the perspective is, because I, I know that Joe Biden believes in climate change mm-hmm. and then he signs his, these these agreements, but they're movable, they're movable. Mm-hmm. And it's as if the coalition that was built to pressure these politicians is now frozen. You have mm. the numbers now. Now is the time to get militant. And so mm. looking back at the Women's March and looking back at the George Floyd protest, I, I, I sit back and I think there was a moment where vast radical change could have happened with that leverage of those people and then it didn't happen. And I don't know if the moment's lost, um, but in this situation, the numbers are there. and. Mm. Maybe there is a certain type of pressure that Joe Biden can get that will move mm. him in a direction where he does not have to sign off on drilling um, because it's just a bad look. I mean, he already did it with Keystone XL and uh, I mean, one step, <laughs> but but militancy. I mean, what, what is what is successful um, escalation of tactics look like? I mean, l- looking at past movements globally. I mean, you, you've documented this in your book. Yeah, so, I mean, my argument in the book is that the idea that movements are only successful when they stick to absolutely peaceful nonviolence doesn't really stuck up because the the evidence of, of, of movements um, uprisings revolts that have been reasonably successful suggests that uh, it's rather the rule that these movements contain uh, elements of property destruction and confrontations with uh, the forces of of the prevailing order, as in as in riots uh, and things like that. Uh, and for the climate movement, I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't endorse indiscriminate escalation, as in we should do whatever it takes and adopt any kind of method. So for instance, I think it would be very bad uh, and damaging to the movement if anyone started assassinating, say, fossil fuel executives or or going after people and harming their bodies and in the worst case, taking their lives, that would be extremely detrimental to the movement, just as it would have been if, if... if uh, BLM activists would have, I don't know, assassinated uh, police uh, chiefs or sent suicide bombers into police headquarters. I mean, it's not that you can do whatever you like. And I'm not arguing that. What I suggest is that sabotage and the destruction of the property that is actually destroying the planet. And what I mean by this is things like wrecking and neutralizing coal mines or pipelines that are under construction or infrastructure for uh, taking more fossil fuels out of the ground, which should now be considered a form of violence against people. Uh, These things could be put out of order without people being hurt and it would be justified and it would be a way of ramping up the pressure and it would be a, 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 a tactic for telling people that this is 
the source of our misery. If we don't let, if, if we don't take these machines and these infrastructures offline, we're just going to have more and more of these fires coming our way, more and more of the hurricanes, of the storms, of the floods and everything. And uh, it's it, it would be a way to demonstrate to governments that unless you are prepared to act against these companies, we have to do it, ordinary people, in sheer self-defense and in the, in the interest of survival, and we're going to, to push you to act on this and to start phasing out fossil fuels as fast as humanely possible. Uh, but clearly, it, it, governments are not doing this of their own accord, of their own initiative. So there has to be pressure from below. And uh, what's really deplorable, I think, is the absence of that pressure right now. Uh, I hope that the climate movement uh, gets back uh, into the streets uh, and, you know, it kind of froze when the pandemic broke out and and uh, almost suspended activities. It, it urgently needs to get back into full gear and uh, and grow by uh, orders of magnitude. And it's a little bit strange to me also that that when you see these things like wildfires in California or what's going on in Greece or in Turkey or the floods in Germany, we have we just had uh, extreme floods in part of, of Sweden. There is no climate action time to these events. So these events, they are, you know, they are, everyone knows or everyone should know at least that they are the result of the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere, but they, they still don't induce any action in the moment. And the climate movement so far has followed a kind of mechanical calendar with timing actions to specific Fridays or to UN summits or things like that. But we need to learn to strike when the iron is hot and tell people, show people through concrete action what has to be done unless we're just, you know, letting this spiral of destruction go on without ever fighting back and trying to stop it. And meaning they need to be, I mean, it's, it's like every organ, organization or movement, you need to be nimble. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly. ultimately it. Um, yeah. If they know you're coming on a Friday, they're not going to pay attention. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 and I, that's what I love about your book is you, you highlight these different uh, successful, um, you know, actions and, and, and uh, escalations, I guess you could say. Um, and they've all, they're all nimble. They're all reactive to mm -hmm. a moment. And, you know, I, I look at, but I guess the one, the one standout for me um, having, been there and early on and um was standing rock and uh, again i mean I, I i worry because you have these really incredible uh movements that have grown in the last few years and yeah. being at standing rock um being at the organizing you know the the rallies that were organizing around standing rock early on and seeing how a couple of teenagers few teenagers mm -hmm. could turn this into a huge 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 movement but at the end of the mm -hmm. day did we raise awareness? Yes. Did are are more people in you know aware of of the ties between the environmental movement movement and um, the slaughter of indigenous people? Of course, but mm -hmm. the pipeline still went on. Obviously, this was in the Trump administration, um, and there are more pipelines. And you know, Biden can say, okay, we're we're going to suspend. Uh, this pipeline here, but there's still 75 more. And there are indigenous people protesting. It's, it feels like it's almost so big that the, the style of escalation needs to be so creative. Um, and I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, what do you see that looking like right now 
with monopolies, with capital, understanding the tactics. Um, what does it look like? Yeah, what does it look like? That's the that's the big question. I mean, I I don't have a recipe and I don't have a a clear uh, like model for what it's going to look like. I just have a. I mean, my my personal sense is just that we need to try every almost everything not everything literally but almost everything that we can and this can include parliamentary campaigns i mean things like the sanders campaign although obviously it was unsuccessful just as the corbyn campaign in in, in the uk but i mean ranging from parliamentary campaigns to uh, to sabotage and property destruction and virtually everything in between and uh, i don't i don't think there is one syllable i don't think there's one magical tactic i think there needs to be a diversity of tactics and initiatives uh, happening. Uh, I mean, I worry that because we're in this trough, we're in this in this period where the climate movement in the global north is very passive uh, compared to what it was in, in 2019 when, when it reached a kind of peak, at least here in Europe, uh, historically speaking. Um, uh, then it was the school strikes, it was Extinction Rebellion, um, it was climate camps. I don't know if the next wave of climate activism will have the exact same components, uh, but there should be, you know, this this wide spectrum, this plethora, this, uh, you know, multiplicity of, uh, of, of struggles and ways of organizing if we're going to turn this around. Because yes, I mean, and and I, I I mean I share your 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 view. Is this likely to happen? No, it's probably quite improbable that we'll we'll win this battle. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, because you don't you don't base your interventions your your politics on probability assessments. As in, I think this outcome is is likely, and therefore I go with, with that outcome and support it. No, you 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 struggle for what you think is right. And right now, what is right is to stop fossil fuels and uh, uh, and get them out of our economies and get rid of these companies that profit from from uh, selling them um yeah yeah <laughs> you know i'm thinking about this you mentioned the climate camps and and um everything that was happening a couple of years ago and uh and i was you know watching the the, the presidential campaign um of bernie sanders you know seeing a lot of these organizations mm-hmm negotiate with the Democratic Party to effectively change the platform. Um, and having been on the platform committee, I can tell you, all right, that doesn't mean anything. But a lot of mm-hmm. energy was being put into this. And, you know, to me, it's just, it's another version of how the the, the nonprofit industrial complex really um, slows down any really meaningful impact. So I, you know, I'm, I ask you, does this need to really come from organizations or can it just be you know, rogue actors, essentially. Can somebody watching right now say, you know what, I know that uh, they're drilling in my neighborhood or or I, I live in North Dakota or, um, or you're in Greece and, you know, they're drilling off of the coast of the Lacanisa or whatever it is. Um, can, can an everyday person just go rogue? Well, I, I don't know. I think there needs to be we we need, we are in such dire straits that we need to experiment with different forms of action and different forms of or, of organizing. Some some forms of organizing need to be completely open and transparent uh, and fully accessible for everyone. In other cases, I think it makes sense to experiment with smaller groups uh, doing actions that um, are you know, are to an extent conducted in secret and uh, cannot be joined by everyone. Uh, 
uh, to 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 take it one step further, so to speak. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think, yeah, you you you're rightly referring to experiences in recent years, and I think that both in North America and in parts of Europe, only parts of them, but in certain parts of Europe, there is a tradition of protest. Uh, to draw on, uh, and I'm thinking here, particularly in Europe, uh, about France, which has gone through you know cycles of social struggle in recent years, uh, but which doesn't really have a, a strong climate movement. Uh, but it needs to have one because the the single largest private company in France is Total, and Total is about to build the world's largest, longest, sorry, heated oil pipeline. Uh, for shipping crude um, through Tanzania and Uganda. And, uh, you know, we know by now that we can't have any more new installations for taking fossil fuels out of the ground and putting them on fire. Even completely mainstream organizations such as the International Energy Agency is saying that we can't have any new installations if we're going to have any chance of uh, uh, passing the threshold of 1.5 degree global warming. And here you have a case of a, of the, the largest company in France initiating this massive project. Um, and France is not alien to, to you know, uh, militant contestation on the streets. So why is there not a Fr- French movement out on the streets? Um, targeting Total and demanding that it, it immediately shelve this project, uh, and and I think in the in the case of France there is um, you know there is a, 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 an ex, you know a whole um, set of experiences of how you can wage social struggles that that could be drawn on, and I think the same goes for 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 the U.S. and for for other countries that where where people have been on the front lines in, in recent years. Uh, okay, so so final question. Uh, I, I know the answer to this, but <laughs> I just have to ask: Does the Paris Accord do anything that is worthwhile? Is it is it actually significant? I mean, you talk about France and and Macron yeah. being one of the the great leaders of the Paris Accord, um, criticizing Trump, but in his own backyard, like you said, yeah, yeah, Total yeah. is taking these uh, yeah. Yeah. making these moves. Yeah. So say that again. Is is, is the anything? Paris Accord is is it is it anything? Is, oh, it, is the Paris Accord anything? Is it nothing sauce, as we like to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yes, it is. I think it is. But the the Paris Accord and and figures like Biden or Macron who pay lip service to climate action, they are more amenable to popular pressure than someone like Donald Trump or the far right government in Poland. Or the far right government in Sweden, which is a crazy climate denialist party, just like the Republicans in the US, that will most likely be part of the next government coalition in this country. These parties and these figures are not susceptible to the pressure that you can that you can leverage on politicians that have promised to do something about this, because then you, you can hold them to account and say, well, fulfill your promises and don't let any more new pipelines be built. Uh, so that that's that's some. I mean, that's an asset in a sense. I mean, it's it is better to have Joe Biden in the White House than Donald Trump. Not necessarily because he is uh, terminating the fossil fuel industry as he should be, but that he has at least nominally recognized the existence of the problem, and therefore he can be uh, potentially pushed 
like Barack Obama could be uh, towards the end of his second term with the struggles around uh, the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access pipelines. Uh, so and and Paris, the Paris Accords, likewise, in and of itself, I think as as an agreement, it is pretty useless because it it has no uh, system of sanctions. There are no binding obligations. All countries just say we want to do this, and there is no mechanism for making sure that the countries live up to what they say they want to do. It's a you know free for all, do whatever you want, and that is not just, and it's not going to be efficient at the end of the day. But these targets that countries, that governments set up, can be used by climate movements to push governments to say you're not living up to what you are saying that you would do in relation to the Paris Accords. I mean, this is uh, this is happening in Sweden and France and many other places. Uh, where where climate movements can very easily point to the to the total discrepancy between the ambitions that governments have formally uh, you know submitted to the paris accords and what they're doing in reality and that that should be used strategically by the movement really fascinating book and conversation um Hopefully people listening and watching are going to take this to heart and be creative and thoughtful and seek out allies that are also as creative and courageous uh, and, and thoughtful in, when taking on um, big oil and any of these, these projects that are happening. And of course, lawmakers as well, who, you know, are frozen. Um, Andreas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this book. And thank and you. Nomi. It was a real pleasure. Real, you know, if you have any ideas or anything, you know, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in secret over here, but you know, we can wink, wink, yeah, nod, yeah. nod, and speak in code, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And if you're not already a member of the book club, go check it out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You get a copy of the book and a conversation with the author, if the author's around or somebody who's an expert. Sometimes we have books that are a little bit older, uh, like The Plunket of Tammany Hall, where we didn't, we actually couldn't pull somebody from Tammany Hall. But uh, yes, you can go check it out at patreon.com slash The Nomiki Show. The Nomiki Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show.